Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. And now, Lord, as we open up your word together and we continue on in this series in Jonah and complete it today, we pray that you would, be, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would help us to be able to understand um, your perspective that comes through clearly here that you would stir our hearts and that we would be unsettled where we need to be unsettled. And that you would make clear to us who you are and what you've done for us and what you're calling us to. And so we lift this time in our hearts to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Washington, D.C. now has a little over 713,000 residents just in the 65 square miles that are called the District of Columbia, about five and a half million in the D.C. metro area. Um, this is the most highly educated county in the United States, and this place, D.C., sees, had nearly 25 million visitors last year, which is a new record for D.C. 25 million people came to this place. And it's no secret that our city has some needs, that our city needs God, that we see extreme wealth, we see extreme poverty, we see idolatry that is at least obvious here. We don't have to work hard to figure out what the idols of our city are, what people are striving toward, and what their ultimate ends are. We, we have monuments to our nation's gods. And I mean, literally, in the Capitol Rotunda, if you look up, there's this wonderful painting on the fre a fresco of George Washington in his military co coat floating on a cloud with with women around him representing different virtues that is called the apotheosis of Washington, the lifting up to be God of George Washington. And so we are a city that's obsessed with work and Im personal impact and power, rightly wielded most some of the time, <laughs> success and wealth. This is a city that is looked at and is paid attention to all over the world. And so people pay, there, there's a, an element that news comes out of this place, and, and at times we don't want it to be otherwise. And here's the thing that I think is fascinating that I want to look at today in the text is that God loves our city. Maybe not in the ways that we think about. I mean, there's lots to love about D.C., but God loves our city. He cares about the people here. He cares about the common good of this place and my hope today as we read and finish off Jonah is that we would reflect and be able to reflect God's love for our city. In Jonah so far, we've been walking through, this is, we're in chapter four today, and so there's only four chapters in the book. We, as we finish up today, we've, we've seen a journey through that God's word has come to Jonah twice. The first time it came to Jonah, God said, Jonah, arise or get up. Go to Nineveh and call out against it for its wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah got up and ran the other way. 
And he started to descend. He went down to Joppa, a port town. He went down onto a ship. He went down below deck as the storms kicked up to go to sleep. And these pagan sailors woke him up and said, he said, get up, call out to your God. And they, they asked him, who are you? What's going on? And Jonah identified that he was running from Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And, and so they, he told them if they throw him overboard, then the storm would stop. And they did. They threw him overboard and the storm ceased and the sailors stopped everything and, and worshipped God. They offered a sacrifice and made vows. But Jonah's descent continued. He was swallowed by a fish, which is probably the most known part of this story. And so he was swallowed by a great fish, and he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And even in his prayer, we see the continued descent. But as we looked at his prayer, we, can, we saw that his prayer is not what it appears to be on the surface. He quotes 15 psalms in his prayer, but he always stopped short of repentance. He didn't have a right view on what had happened. He, he blamed God for it, saying, saying, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and, you, and the floods surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. I've been driven from your sight. And so Jonah blamed God, but then said that when his prayer reached God, God responded to save him. And he, then he threw out a jab to those who pay regard to idols. And so God spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out. So then God's word came to him a second time. Same three commands. Jonah, get up. Go to Nineveh and call out the message that I give you. But here God specified, <clears throat> he said, get up, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and, and call out the message that I have given you. And so it says that Jonah got up and went to Nineveh in accordance with the word of the Lord, and Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Jonah came in and he proclaimed destruction that got 40 days until they would be destroyed. And the whole city put on sackcloth and started a fast. And when word reached the king, he got up from his throne and came down into the ashes, set aside his robes, and made a declaration. He said, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink on water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. <clears throat> and God did relent. And so today we see Jonah's reaction. <clears throat> Sorry, the allergies are getting to me. And there's some more singing as we were, you were leading us to heaven to clear this out. All right, so here we go. Jonah, now we see his response. And similar to chapter 2, we see Jonah call out to God. So we see a prayer, and we see God respond to him. And so we'll begin just with, by reading chapter 3, verse 10. And it says, When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, <clears throat> relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, 
for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, you do well to be angry. And Jonah went out of the city and sat east, to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he, and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But, but God said to, to Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the only book in the whole Bible that ends with a question. And as it stands on its own, it's, it's pretty jarring. Like, how, to have it end like this, and God asking Jonah a question that goes unresolved, but it's, it, 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 the answer seems apparent on the surface for us, standing at a distance and looking at what Jonah's experiencing here. It seems pretty clear to us that, that Jonah's out of line here, but, but Jonah didn't see it as clearly. And I think we often miss it as well. Now, there's a contrast, Jonah with God here. And and as chapter 3 ends, God saw the repentance of the Ninevites. He saw the way that they were responding and the way they were crying out. And so he relented from the disaster. He saw that they were turning from their evil ways. And he said, okay, I'm not going to bring that disaster upon you. But Jonah, this was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He was angry about it. And so this is the same, again, the same structure as chapter 2, that Jonah prayed, and it says Jonah prayed and he said, and we get his prayer and God's response, and Jonah's prayer here reveals his heart. This whole way as we've been walking through Jonah, it's not the the book that you learn as a kid. If you remember, as we started, we brought up, I brought up on the screen an old Jonah Go Fish game that stopped at number 9, and number 9 was, the Ninevites all repented, hooray. And one of the points was that Jonah obeyed God. But I don't think he ever obeyed God. He partially obeyed. The first time that God's three commands came to him, get up, go to Nineveh, and call out, Jonah got up and then did his own thing and tried to escape it. The second time, get up, go to Nineveh, and call out, and Jonah got up and went to Nineveh in accordance with the word of the Lord, but I'm not convinced he gave the fullness of God's message. And so Jonah hasn't been fully obedient, and now this prayer is how we need to understand, and it's what shapes our understanding of the rest of this book as we've come through it. He tells us why he ran to Tarshish. He tells us why he didn't go to Nineveh the first time. He, and, and as he does, it's shocking because he uses God's self-designation and God's statement about himself on Mount Sinai as an indictment against God. It's also the most accurate thing that has come out of Jonah's lips so far. So as the story comes to a close, Jonah is alone 
He's angry. He's brooding. He set up a little tent or booth, a little structure on the, to the east of the city, sitting on a hillside, waiting for Nineveh to burn. Jonah knew all about God. He could quote scripture. He could make some theological statements. When he got asked by the sailors, you know, they, they came to him and said, like, tell us on whose account this evil has come. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And so he can say theological things, but Jonah makes it clear throughout this book that he does not know God. Knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing God. J.I. Packer says this. He says there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you will have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. And so Jonah here is angry enough to die twice over. And do you see the things that make him angry? He says, God, I knew that you were like this. I knew that you, this is what I told you and why I left. I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew it. You are merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, kill me. <laughs> it's too much. And when, and the way that the ESV translates this, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I don't think any of us have ever asked a question like that in our lives. Um, and so it's hard to translate between languages. I think the better sense of this is, what right do you have to be angry, Jonah? The plant comes up, and then God appoints a worm, which, I mean, that's, I don't know what kind of plant and what kind of worm. I feel about this like I do about the fish. Like, if God appointed a fish to swallow the man, I don't need to understand the science of how he stayed alive in the fish's belly. God would have done it. And so here, a plant comes up overnight the next day. I don't know what kind of worm this is that would destroy the plant overnight, but it comes up. He has a scorching east wind, and Jonah is so angry about the plant that he again asks God that he would die. It's better for me to die to, than to live. And God again, what right do you have to be angry about this plant? You didn't do anything for this, Jonah. You pity this plant, but you didn't work on it. You didn't cultivate this. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. What right do you have to be angry about this? And so today as we spend our time together, I want to talk about what it means to know God. What we see about who God is, is particularly in chapter 4, but what we've seen throughout this book and this story and what it means for us. I mean, Jonah's anger against God it comes because he sees other people being blessed. It comes because he sees threats to his own comfort and things are not going how Jonah thinks they ought to be going. And this is where, for us, it might be a little hard to imagine saying, shaking our fist at God and saying, I knew this about you. I knew that you were merciful and gracious and compassionate. I knew that you would relent from disaster. I knew that you abounded in steadfast love and using that as accusations against God. But if we actually step back and think about do we ever feel anger within us or frustration within us or injustice within us when we see other people prospering and other people being successful? When you see that person get promoted ahead of you and you know that you're better? What, do we ever feel angry when our comfort gets threatened? For sure. And every one of us thinks that we know how our lives ought to be going and looks at the reality and it doesn't quite match up. 
And so four realizations in knowing God today. First, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Now, again, Jonah knows Bible verses. He claims God, but when every time we see pagans in this story, whether it's the sailors, whether it's the Ninevites, or whether it's the king of Nineveh, they don't, they don't, they don't know much about God, but they immediately respond to God and obey and submit themselves to God. They make theological statements about God's sovereignty and say things like, Lord, you have done as it has pleased you. Don't put this man's blood on our hands. And, and then they stop and they, and they sacrifice sacrifices. The king is calling out to everyone, who knows, maybe God will relent. So turn away from your evil ways. Like there's an instant responsiveness. And one of the major themes throughout this entire story is the, the partial obedience of Jonah versus the immediate obedience of everyone and everything else. The wind obeyed God. The sea obeyed God, both to start a storm and to be stilled. The sailors obeyed God. The fish obeyed God, both in swallowing Jonah and vomiting him back up. And don't forget that both of those words are used consistently throughout the Bible for statements of judgment. The, the commoners in Nineveh obeyed God and turned and cried out and t- turned to a fast and repentance. The king obeyed God. Livestock obey God. And the king declares a fast for all livestock. The, the plant obeys God. The worm obeys God. But Jonah? No. Now he quotes from Exodus 34 when he uses these things against God and he says, Lord, isn't this what I told you that when I left Tarshish, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You need to understand how profound it is that Jonah is quoting these characteristics of God. When God brought his people out of Egypt... And, and with the ten plagues and, and saved them from Egypt. If you haven't seen it, again, I will always recommend that Prince of Egypt is a fantastic movie, even though it's a little bit old. But as God brought his people out of Egypt, he brought them then to Mount Sinai. Where the, and that's where he entered into a covenant and, with his people and said, out of everyone on earth, you can be my treasured possession. You can be a kingdom of priests. And invited them into a covenant. And, and at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, and the people said, yes, we want this. The elders of the people embraced it. And so the rest of Exodus then, we see the outworking of trying to step into that covenant relationship. In chapter 20, God begins by giving the first 10 of the commandments. And then Moses goes up onto the mountain and, and, um, and he goes up onto Sinai to spend time receiving God's full covenant, his word and his law from God himself. But he took a little while. Moses was gone for 40 days. And in those 40 days, the people got antsy. And they started looking back and saying, like, this is, why are we out here? Where did the guy who led us out here go? And so they started pressure, pressuring Aaron and saying, hey, we've, we've got to do something here. And so Aaron decided to help fashion a calf that was gold-leafed for them to worship and said, this is your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And so they, as Moses came down from the mountain with God's law written onto stone tablets, he saw the people in a festival to this idol, to this false god. And so before the law could even be delivered, God's people had turned away from him. He broke the tablets 
He pleaded with God, saying, saying you know, you've got to, uh, please, don't leave these people behind. You've got to come with us, and otherwise the, nobody will know that we're your people. And so, so you've got to be with us. And, and God says, I will come with you, and, and people will know that you are my people. And so Moses had enough, enough boldness to say, all right, now, Lord, please, in light of this, the Lord said, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. You've found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, okay, please then, show me your glory. And God instead gave Moses not what he wanted, but what he needed. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man can, shall not see me and live. And so God hid him in the cleft of a rock, and his, his presence passed before him, and his goodness passed before him. And as he did, God knew that Moses needed to hear who he is more than see his face. And it says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Again, when it's all capitals like that, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so this is God's proclamation of who he is. He is a God who is gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, in steadfast love. That's chesed love, this never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love of God for his people, covenant love, and keeping that steadfast love for thousands. And so Jonah turns this incredible moment of God's self-proclamation and self-disclosure to Moses on Sinai and says, this is what's wrong with you. Like only God can define himself, and so he says he's gracious. That means he gives us what we don't deserve. That he's merciful. That means he withholds the punishment we do deserve. That he's compassionate. That's love in action on behalf of those he loves. And he's slow to anger, so he's patient with us, wanting us to come to repentance. And he abounds in love and covenant faithfulness. And Jonah stands in contrast to God on every single point throughout this story. He's not gracious. He doesn't want people to have what he has. He wants to keep all of God and God's blessings to himself. He's not compassionate. He doesn't show love to anybody that, that's in this story. He's not slow to anger. In fact, right now he's sitting on the hillside waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed. He's angry enough to die. And when there's a plant that gets killed overnight, he's angry enough to die again. And so Jonah is contrasted to God. In the meanwhile, the Ninevites, again, responded as God had called people to respond. If you want to see a fullness of a prophetic call to people, where Jonah's was eight words, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, Joel chapter 2 shows us what it looks like when God says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And so God is true to his character. 
And as the Ninevites have turned and the king of Nineveh has turned in repentance, he relented of disaster and he has been true to his word and his character. But Jonah's angry about it. Now again, I think it's easy for us to be a little hard on Jonah and be like, I can't imagine sitting over a city and really legitimately hoping that God just destroys all of them. Maybe you can imagine that. I'm trying to give us all the benefit of the doubt. But, but we do get caught up in these things. We all know the feeling of, of this feeling with other people. I mean, there, sometimes this happens individual, individually, that there are some people who just make us crazy. Like, you don't even have to get to know them long. It's not even that they did something against you or something that gives you reason for it. That's, there are some times where someone will walk into a room and you immediately just think, I don't know what to do with that person. I can't stand them. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> But there are whole groups of people that we get prejudiced against, every one of us. And I don't know who it is for you. It could be different regions of the country, it could be different political perspectives, it could be different places across this world. It's, it's, it, but this happens to us, and we feel, and every bit of it is justifiable in our minds. And so as we, as we think about it, we really need to do an assessment of our own hearts. That there are times that we get angry that God would bless somebody. That we, there are times where we look at things and, and like the psalmists cry out, like, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the bad people seem to win? Why is God kind to them? And Jonah is angry at God for who he is. And we do this too. That there are times when we would like to be the ones who are sovereign in control of our circumstances. That we think we know how things ought to be going. And we need to be careful. We, do, we, we make this implicit when we say things like, well, I love God, I think there's some truth here, but, but I just wish he wasn't this way. Like, I love God's love, but I don't know about his justice. I don't really, I get uncomfortable with wrath. Like, I don't, I don't know if I like that part of God. Or when we say, like, I just can't worship a God who, who does this thing or has this perspective. It, but as soon as we begin to shape and define God, we are also working to control God, and we end up shaping God into our own image and likeness rather than being reshaped into the image and likeness of God. And it's hard because every one of us has a tendency to think about God not as God, as God proclaims, but we have a tendency to have an idealized version of a human being, really an idealized version of ourselves, and think, what would it be like if I was a perfect version of me? But God is beyond that. He's God and he, we are not, and he loves us anyway. Why? Because he is gracious and merciful. He's compassionate and slow to anger and abounds in love. And so we need to be careful not to shape God into, a, into a, 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 something more palatable that we can control and, or at least admit that we're only in, per, interested in pursuing our own desires. But, but no, we need to give God the chance to define himself and realize that his ways are not our ways, that we will not always understand what God is doing. We will not always understand the pathways and processes of this life as it works itself out. We won't understand why suffering comes into our lives and why it comes when it does. We won't understand why good things come into our lives. There are aspects of reality that are beyond us. As God says in Isaiah chapter 55, 
He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man in his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Why? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is God and we are not, and yet he loves us. That is maybe the least satisfying theological truth that I could try to bring to you today. Like this is when you, if you read Romans and Paul is talking about the interaction between like the difference between God's work among the Jewish people as his covenant people and now the opening to the Gentiles and, and how God's working and how that's all worked and what it means to be the people of God. And it's this incredibly dense, incredibly difficult section of scripture from Romans 9 to 11 to try to break down and understand what's being argued theologically there. And then you get to the middle of it and in the very center of that argument, Paul, Paul's just, basically what he says is, well, who are you, O clay, to say to the potter what you should be? Who are we to tell God how things ought to be going? Eugene Peterson, commenting on Jonah, said, There are a thousand ways of being religious without submitting to Christ's lordship, and people are practiced in most of them. We live in a golden calf country. Religious feelings, feeling runs high, but in ways far removed from what was said at Sinai and done on Calvary. While everyone has a hunger for God, a deep and insatiable hunger, none of us has any great desire for him. What we really want is to be our own gods and have whatever other gods that are around to help in this work. And so as we come to know God and not just know about God, we need to realize that God's ways are not our ways. And if our theology leads us to believe that we can control God's actions, it's a theology that doesn't come from Scripture or God's self-disclosure, but comes from within ourselves. The second reality is that God's plans are not our plans. And we don't like this part either. Because every one of us thinks that we know how things ought to go in our lives. Every one of us has a great plan for what ought to be happening in our lives, and, and it, it almost never goes like we want it to. Um, and, and every one of us, I mean, if you don't believe me on this, like, how often have you tried to plan an event with a group of people? It's a nightmare. Because you'll have everybody say, I mean, it, so how often does it happen that you, you have a group of people and you're just trying to figure out, like, are we going to grab brunch after church today? And everybody, will, you'll have people go, I don't care, wherever's fine, I'm easy. And then as soon as you say, all right, well, then we're going to go to Ted's Bullet. And you'll go, no. No, I don't want to do that. The line's going to be too long. Okay, so you do care. No. No, I don't. Like, planning road trips before we had Google Maps and Waze. Like, I don't know if any of you remember MapQuest when we'd have to print out the directions um, on MapQuest, and then they wouldn't get us there. Um, and you'd be stuck with these MapQuest directions that didn't have a map, and it was miserable. So I can remember road trips, and we would have this thing that was bound, usually spiral-bound, called an atlas. <laughs> Um, that I've, I've forced my kids to learn how to use on road trips. We'd actually bring one with us in the car. But like planning road trips, now we just punch in on Waze and it tells us how many hours we should get there in. And every time we stop for the bathroom, I watch that clock ticking. Um, <laughs> but like when you had to plan for that, 
then it would, be, it would become a debate. Like, which route are we going to take? Are we going to take this highway, this highway? Well, what if we hit Atlanta during rush hour? Well, they don't want to do that. Like, and so even that became something that we had to fight our way through. Like, it, we want things to go the way we want them to go. Every one of us has an idea of how, things we want, how well we want things to go. And even if we don't think we do, we realize we do as, somebody, as soon as somebody offers their own suggestion. God's plans are not our plans. And that's hard. That Jonah here doesn't want to hear that. And Jonah went into Nineveh, and he gave an eight-word sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he went east of the city and waited for that to come true. And he's angry enough to die because God didn't do things how Jonah thought he should do things. Now, again, the sailors said, hey, Lord, you have done as you've pleased. The Ninevites and the king said, who knows? God might turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. And so you see the others here recognizing God's sovereignty and showing humility and coming under what God is doing. But Jonah refuses to, and he still believes that God must act as Jonah wants him to act. Jonah would rather die than live in a scenario where he doesn't get his way. Jesus' call to us, if we're actually going to follow him and be redeemed and renewed and restored, is that we would die to our own ways and priorities so that we can actually live. See, God knows what he's doing. He doesn't act on accident. He's, and, and that's troubling for us at times because the idea that what God will do as he pleases gets scary. When you hear God will do as he pleases and he's sovereign, then we immediately respond with wanting to say like, no, 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 I have free will, I have autonomy, I have the ability to choose things. Yes, you do, and God is sovereign. But it shows if that's troubling, if it's scary to us that God plans things and does things as he will do things, then that shows that we have a fundamental misunderstanding or an insufficient understanding of who God is. Like, do you believe that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love? And if you believe that, then what are you worried about? But we act and live as if God is sitting in in heaven with some kind of like cosmic zap button. Like, oh, shouldn't have chosen that school to go to. (laughs) Shouldn't have chosen that person to go out on a date with. That That was not the right job choice. God, God, his ways are not our ways, his plans are not our plans, but he is sovereign over all things. Now, Jonah wants to control God because his primary concern is not the Ninevites, it's not doing God's will, it's not obeying God. Jonah's primary concern is his own comfort. And the bottom line is, he does not trust God with his comfort. That's where it comes to bear on us. Like, what is it that makes, what are we scared to lose if God is truly sovereign? What is it that if it was taken from you, you might want to give up living? Because if you can identify what or who that is, then that is your true God. That is your idol. And, and understanding God's plans and understanding his heart will change the way that we see others. Jonah would rather die than see pagans saved because he's only concerned about himself. And the Ninevites were the capital of Assyria who had conquered the kingdom of Israel. So he wanted nothing to do with these people. Well, the sailors are saying, like, don't hold this guy's blood against us. They work to not kill him. The king is saying, everybody repent, even the animals. He's concerned for all. But Jonah is concerned primarily about his comfort. 
And so knowing God, we'll understand that God's ways are not our ways, his plans are not our plans, and third, God's purposes are not our purposes. It's hard for our own comfort not to be the end goal for us. Jonah feels entitled to it. And we often can as well. He's driven by comfort to have partial obedience. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to do it. And so he runs away to the boat. Gets spit up on the land and still he's like, nope, ah, fine, I'll go. But I'm not saying the right thing. He feels entitled to the plant. There's only one time that Jonah feels anything positive in this entire book. Did you catch that? Now the Lord God, in verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that that it might be a shade over his head to do what? To save him from his discomfort. So... Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah did nothing to plant this plant. He did nothing to earn this plant. He didn't cultivate this plant. Like God said, it came up overnight and it was destroyed overnight. Like what are you so upset about? But, but Jonah was glad for the first time because God saved him from his discomfort. Functionally, it is all too easy for us to approach God the same way. We can do that in, a, in like an eternal level. If coming to God is only a matter of fire insurance, where you're like, I do not want to go to hell for the rest of eternity, which is, that's logical, that makes sense. So I'm going to pray this prayer so I don't have to do that, and then I'm going to get on with my life. Well, what you're doing is saying, I do not want that discomfort, and I instead want eternal comfort. And so I'm going to, it's still our desire for comfort that's primarily driving us. And we miss that the entire point of redemption throughout scripture is not just that we escape hell. It's that we spend eternity basking in the presence of the glory of God. That what we receive in the end is not, and we we cast heaven as comfort. Like we talk about like, what is my mansion going to look like? And we realize that you don't realize that Jesus said in my father's house, there are many rooms. You're getting a room. (laughs) <laughs> like, what is my mansion going to look like? And we think about, it, like, I'm going to sit there, and it's going to look like this. I'm going to get to sit down and sit under a tree and sip lemonade, and, and it's going to be great. And we're going to eat good meat and drink good wine, because that's promised at the feast. And yes and amen. But those are the benefits of eternity. The, the, the actual goal and the glory of eternity is that we get God's presence in its fullness. We're driven by comfort in this life, and so we practically look at God, and when things are uncomfortable, that's when we shake our fist at God and say, why is it this way? When things are comfortable, like Jonah, we don't have a tendency to go, oh, Lord, thank you for this incredible season of comfort. Thank you for this thing that's been so good. When things go well, we have a tendency, like Jonah, to go, all right, this is how it ought to be. I feel good about this. And if it gets taken away, we'd rather die. Like Jonah's extreme here, but it reflects something in every one of our hearts. He can quote the character and attributes of God. He knows them in his mind. He's able to quote them back to God, but he has no experience of God's goodness or true concern for his compassion for others. Like one theologian talked about this, that, talking about honey, that, that you can know rationally what honey is. You can read about it, and I could describe it to you, but no one can adequately tell you what honey is like unless it is on your lips and on your tongue. 
That's when you experience it in an entirely different way. In the same way, you can know all kinds of things about God. You can know all kinds of things about his character and what he's done and still not grasp an actual knowledge and experience of him. And, and this is where we do need to step back and ask, again, it, God's purposes are not our purposes. And, and so our purposes tend to be a little bit more self-centered, a little more self-focused, or we surround ourselves with people who are like us because we find our safety and significance by being around people who think like, talk like, look like, act like us. And so, and so then when we do that, we have to try to decide who's in or out of what is acceptable. And so there's a real question here. Are there people who you think are undeserving of God's love? And what's the dividing line for you? Look at the, the increasing polarization and divides politically in our country. Are there people on the extremes, right, left, or both, that you think are so far gone that you wish God would just remove them so we could get on with having a country? Do you pray that God would intervene and bring people to repentance and salvation, not so they can repent and see the world the way you see it, but so that they could, be, so they could return to a relationship with God. How often do you actively pray for God to show his love and mercy and grace and compassion to people that you don't like? It's easy to do that for people that are around us, that are our friends, that are family, but, but if we aren't actively in praying for and pursuing pursuing God's kindness on people that, that we don't like, then, then what are, what's stopping us? See, when Jonah thinks God's love is directed at him, then he's happy. He's glad, and he praises God. But when God's love is directed elsewhere, well, that's not fair. What about me? We have three kids for now. <laughs> Our oldest just graduated high school. With three kids, though, their entire time growing up, we realized that if we had a, a treat, that we either had three or none. Because if we gave one or two of our kids a popsicle and didn't have a third one, that was a recipe for chaos. Because it was instantly, why do they get that? Why do they, why, what about me? What about me? And, and so with kids, we can see that because they're totally unfiltered, and we still do the same thing today. But God's response is, what right do you have to be angry? Jonah goes up to wait for fireworks, and, 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 but still, God appointed a plant, a worm, a wind that were obedient, and the plant is a gift from God, and he's the giver of salvation and comfort. And Jonah's happy for the first time in the book, and he wants to die again. Why? Because it became uncomfortable, but personal comfort will not save us. God saved Jonah from discomfort, and do you see the language there? It's, it's, Jonah, it's not Jonah's biggest problem, though. The biggest problem wasn't the heat on his head. It was his wicked heart. Jonah saw the fish as salvation, even though the language of the fish is judgment. And so, and so Jonah felt entitled to all these things. He didn't earn or labor for these things. God is the giver of all good things, but he is more concerned for his own comfort than the salvation of 120,000 people who bear the image and likeness of God and are hopelessly lost. So we need to think about D.C. as well. People don't love this place. Many people don't love this place. People come here to raise their voice and make a point, and then they leave their trash behind on the National Mall. And that happens in a bigger picture than just an event. That people come to this place as cultural tourists who will exploit this place in this city for their own gain. 
and their own comfort. Not to invest into the good of it. But we need to remember in the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief and highest end of man? To glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. All right, the fourth characteristic that I'm going to have to just speed through. God's love is not limited like our love. All people bear God's image and likeness. He made all things. He made us male and female to reflect him. And sin has shattered that image, but we still bear it in fragments. Sin is our deepest problem, not our comfort, wealth, power, success, or lack of. And God alone is the solution. And so God took on flesh in the person Jesus Christ, and he came to make a way for us. And we need to understand that if what we need, that Jesus is the solution to our greatest need. And if what we needed was success, then Christ could have come as a businessman and showed us the pathway to success. If what we needed was power, Christ would have come as the politician, the king that tr- people tried to make him into and taken that power. If it was wealth, he could have come as an economist and he could have shown us the pathway there. If it was comfort, he could have come in any manner of ways. Maybe, I don't know, as a massage therapist. Christ didn't come as any of those things. He came and met our deepest need. He took on flesh, God incarnate, in order to redeem us, to purchase us from the penalty of sin. And so he, he went to the cross in our place, on our behalf, and was raised to life. And now we get to throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Because in Christ... The one who cannot be seen, as he said it to Moses, has been seen. It tells us in John chapter 1. It is by grace, through faith in Christ, led by the Spirit into adoption, that we can be reconciled to the Father. And that's what it means to know God. We know God in Christ. But that is not just our own individual salvation stories. God is doing a work in renewing and restoring all things. And that means that he cares about our city and the common good of this place as well. I've kind of laughed along the way that they keep bringing up cattle. Like, why are cattle mentioned so often in this book? And so I spent some time this past week thinking about that and going, like, is this just because God loves cows? No, I don't think it's that, though they are delicious. (laughs) But I'm sure that's not the point here. That is one of my biggest conundrums about eternity, is how do we get the finest meats in eternity? But that's going to be for another day. (laughs) No, I'm... As I've dug into this, I understand, I think, more clearly. Tim Keller captured it, so here's how I came to understanding of it. (laughs) God is concerned about the city, the shalom of the city, the city, the economy of the city, the safety of the city, the housing of the city. That's what he was saying in Jeremiah 29 when he says to seek the good, the welfare of the city. He's not just filled with love for the individual souls. He is filled with love for the city. See, when we think about economy and stability and success and and being able to to do the things we need to do and have what we need to be able to live here, we think about bank accounts, which are really just, I mean, I don't even know what they are anymore. It's, It's money that floats around somewhere in the atmosphere and does not exist physically for most of us. This was a physical representation of people's wealth and stability. Was their livestock... God is saying that he cares about this place and the good of this place. And so this is where we need to land today, is that God loves our city. There are 1,713,000 people here in desperate need 
who don't know their right from their left. And it, that number is growing every month right now. This city is filled with people who don't even realize that the, their deepest needs, let alone are looking for an answer to those needs. And so, so we need to be careful about condemning Jonah too harshly while not looking at ourselves because God's people, the church, too often fall into the same traps that we see Jonah fall into. The book of Jonah is a stinging critique to inward-focused Christians who are more concerned with building walls around their community than bridges into their city. And so the most important thing we come out of this book with is, is understanding that we can know God and be a part of the work that God is doing. And so I wanted to preach through this book together, and so we walked through this book together as a church because we have been put in this place at this time, and God has called us, get up, go to D.C., and call out. Get up, leave your comfort, leave your preconceptions, get up and, and get active in our lives rather than sit, sitting back in self-protection and go into the city. And many of you have landed here from elsewhere, and so it's not by accident, but the question is, are you going to maximize your opportunity in this city? What are you actively praying for? What are you pursuing? And are you seeking the welfare and the good of this place? And then if we get up and go and we're here in this place, then our commission has been made clear by Christ. That go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So we have a gospel, good news to call out, and we are called to announce that good, not to convince or argue or discuss, but to announce good news with the hope that people might turn from their evil way, from the violence that is in their hands, and who knows God might relent, turn from his fierce anger so that they don't perish. Because God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Let's pray. Father, we, we need your help to be able to get our eyes off of ourselves. To be able to see what you're doing around us to be able to be more concerned with, with people and the, and the good of this place than we are with our own success and comfort. I want to be a man who knows you and not just knows about you. I want us to be a people who knows you. That, yeah, it's good to know things about you, know your character and know good theology and know what it means to, to hear your word and to be able to, to quote your word and dig into scripture. But, but Father, we want to know you. So I pray today that, that you would stir our hearts to that end. That we would see that, yeah, your ways, your purposes, your thoughts, your plans, that your love is not like our love. But that means that that we can come in closer alignment with you as your spirit works in us and through us. As we pray today that you would move in our hearts and use us as a church in this place. We pray in Christ's name, amen.